About 10 years ago, I was on a mission uh, trip in the Philippines, and I was in a city called Davao, and I was going to speak at this church, and the pastor uh, knew a little bit about me. We had kind of talked ahead of time, and, uh, he, and he knew that as a hobby at the time, I raced cars. So I got to, he came to pick me up to go to the church, and he says, Pastor, I heard that you are a race car driver, which is a bit of an exact, well, a lot of an exaggeration. A race car driver. And he holds up his keys and he says, I would like you to drive me to the church. My wife and I would be honored. So, okay. So I take the keys and it's this big old SUV. I don't even know what kind it was. They're not available in North America. It's a five-speed manual transmission and the back seats faced each other like an army vehicle. And uh, so I got in it. And um, the accelerator was kind of like depressing, like a rusty pogo stick. And the, 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 the shifter felt like a big wooden spoon being shoved through a bowl of mashed potatoes. It was not a great car. But I thought, this guy wants a, a, a ride, so let's show him what the car can do. And, um, but the thing is that at the time, there were areas in the city that didn't have a speed limit. So Davao, don't think of it like Germany, the Autobahn, because the roads in Germany and the roads in Davao, I promise you, are not the same. And, but there were areas in the city that had no speed limit. So I'm flying along, taking him to the church, and uh, he's very excited about this. And, um, and this truck pulls out uh, in front of us and kind of is inching over and pushes me into the oncoming traffic lane. So I speed around the truck, and as I speed around the truck, I go through this massive, I'd say pothole, but it was more like a, like a crater. And this deluge of water, this tidal wave, soaks these people standing on the sidewalk. So I feel totally terrible. I've totally soaked these people. And right after, we, right after I soak the people, he, the pastor says very quietly, they go to the church. <laughs> and so, anyway, so that was a rough service. Um, but I bring that up because in 2015, the city of Davao implemented speed limits all throughout the entire city, and they brought restriction. The interesting thing about restriction is that we immediately think of it as an assault to our freedom. Truthfully, in many areas of your life, restriction and constraint is the means to freedom. You don't want to define freedom in merely negative terms, as though that you've taken, you've employed restraint and now you've taken away freedom. Uh, for example, if you're going to become a proficient in anything in your life, we talked about this at our study, Reason for God, so I'm borrowing heavily from Keller's uh, uh, chapter on, on where he's talking about freedom here. But you do a lot of things deliberately to lose freedom so you can gain freedom in other areas. For example, if you're struggling with your health, you will, you will intentionally put restrictions on your diet so you can enjoy a greater freedom and liberation over here. Or if your, your uh, body is weak and you want your body to be stronger, then you're going to take time that you would have otherwise been, you know, you could have done a Netflix binge, but now you're going to do things intentionally to enjoy freedom in your health. Those of you who have started companies in this room, many of you have t- know what it's like to start a company and put intentional restrictions on yourself to enjoy greater freedoms later. You know what it's like to be paid last, or you know what it's like to not be paid at all. You'll put restrictions on these, but you, it's a means to a greater liberation. We've got hockey players in this room, right? Some young hockey players in here. We've got some young basketball players in here. We've got some really young baseball players in here, right? I see you back there, Orlando. And uh, you'll you'll put restriction intentionally on to enjoy liberation on the ice, liberation on the field, liberation on the court. You'll do that. All your friends will go and, you know, watch movies, but you're practicing your slap shot in your driveway. It's a means 
to enjoying great freedom. This morning's text is from Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 22 to 25, where Paul starts to unpack what our freedom in the gospel is for. We're coming in mid-conversation, the first four chapters of Galatians, as we've been working through Paul's book. He's talking about what the gospel is. It is God's great undeserved grace and merit coming towards us, though we don't deserve it. It is the grace of Christ. It is his perfect work. It is his perfection, not our imperfect attempts. The beauty of the gospel reveals that God does not meet us halfway. We can't meet God halfway. God had to come all the way. So if you're visiting this morning or you're new to church or you're new to the Bible or the scriptures and maybe you've thought Christian faith is about living a life of particular discipline so God is happy with you, that's not true. You need to understand that the Christian faith is about us finding great rest in the fact that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life none of us could live. And God is now satisfied with us on the basis of Christ. That's the first four chapters of Galatians. Paul is fighting false teaching where they say, yeah, what Jesus did is great, but also your contribution. And Paul said, that's false. There is no contribution. The gospel is total substitution. But that scandalous grace has a sanctifying trajectory. The grace that rescued us is actually renewing us. And now we're coming in mid-conversation where Paul talks about what that freedom looks like. What have we been freed for? I'm sorry, what have we been freed from and what are we being freed for? So he gives this big list of vices, not just sinful actions we can do, but sinful motivations that are actually underneath the action, that are driving the action. He says, that's the work of the flesh. That's what, that's what you left to your own devices and your old nature is up to. And then he shifts, which is the text we're about to pick up, where now he shifts from talking about vices to virtue. And the Bible uses the word fruit uh, to talk about that. So here we are, picking it up in Galatians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is God's Word. Now, as we look at this text this morning, we're going to look at three things um, that Paul gives us here on how we can enjoy the freedom of this, the fruit of the Spirit. You see, because the Spirit produces it. This can't be a sermon today on how you produce the fruit of the Spirit because it's not yours to produce. We can confuse natural gifting and we can confuse personality for fruit, but he uses the single word fruit to describe nine things because these nine things are being produced simultaneously by the power of the Spirit in our lives. The, the, using the singular word fruit is speaking to the singular Spirit who is the cause of the fruit, which means all of the glory and the graces to God. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's this. We belong to Christ because his grace rescued us. We desire to resemble Christ because his grace is reforming us. And we keep in step with the spirit of Christ because his grace is reanimating us. These are the three things that, we want, that this text gives us that we're going to look at. How we belong to him because his grace rescued us. Why we desire to resemble him because his grace reforms us. And how we keep in step with the spirit of Christ because his grace is reanimating us. So first, let's look at the first thing about belonging. We belong to Christ because his grace rescued us. In verse 24, it says that. We belong to him. Now, a fish 
was created for water. The fish is constrained by water, and the fish thrives in water. A fish outside of the water is not free. It's shriveling slowly. And we were created by Christ. We were created for Christ. We are constrained by the lordship of Christ, and we thrive in the grace of Christ. So to live outside of the lordship of Christ is not freedom. Our souls shrivel slowly. Everything I just said, by the way, is echoed in Colossians uh, chapter 1. You can read that. We were created by him and for him, and through him everything consists. Right. In the same way that the constraints of the water liberate the fish, love is a constraint that actually liberates us. Right? One of the outworkings of love in your life, whether it's love of your friends, love of your family, or romantic love, is that love, by its own nature, requires that we lose our independence. If we're going to enjoy love, we have to lose our independence so that we can attain intimacy. Because a heart that is gripped by independence is predisposed to do whatever benefits itself at the expense of others. But a heart that is gripped by love is predisposed to do whatever serves the interests of others, even at the expense of self. So love compels us to do great things at personal cost. And from the outside, the sacrifices that we all make for love seem constricting. But internally, it's very liberating to make sacrifices for those that we love. We all understand this, whether it's a friendship love or a romantic love. So therefore, receiving this grace, receiving the grace of Christ... And belonging to Christ, like that's what verse 24 is saying, you belong to him. It's the greatest liberation that our souls can enjoy. And this is because like a fish thrives gliding under the water, our hearts thrive living under the lordship of Christ. Belonging to God actually liberates us. And at first glance, Christian faith seems very constricting. Because at first glance, and maybe you're here today and you're searching and seeking, you've got questions about Christian faith. And from the outside, you go, that seems really constricting. Because if I'm believing that there's a God, and I'm belonging to a God, I have just forfeited my right to be God. So it's a constraint, immediately. And that's true. However, the gospel reminds us that in the most radical way, in the most mind-blowing way, in the most jaw-dropping way, the God of the universe constrained himself. To be like you, to save you, to chase you down, to liberate you. When you think about this gospel, in the incarnation, the God of the universe wrapped himself in the dirt of his creation so that he could liberate his creation. The perfect incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, the perfect life that he lived that you and I could never live. His atoning and substitutionary death, which actually destroys the finality and the fear of our death and of all death. The death itself had a funeral because of what Christ did. And the empty tomb, the resurrection, which is the hope for all Christians that united to God, united to Christ, this life is not all that there is. We are loved with a love that death itself cannot steal, cannot take away. We are united to that, we belong to that, and it gives us great hope. And it gives us new eyes, fresh eyes, with which to deal with the paradox of this life, which is joy and pain, beautiful and suffering, great things that make us smile, and 
things that make our stomachs turn over. The gospel gives us great hope and great freedom because God became as we are so that gradually, continually, inevitably, we will become as he is. This is the great promise and the hope of the gospel. He took our sin and the finality of our death. He loves us with this great love that death itself can't steal. So by grace, we belong to that. And so we've been freed from living like slaves to the vices that we looked at last week, that for those of you who are visiting this week, these vices, these works of the flesh, the, the, the things that we do that keep us from loving others, the things that we do that put our self-love on the throne of our hearts, the ways that we live that cause us to build an idolatrous wall around our own soul that says, me first, comfort first. And the gospel saves us. We have been freed from being slaves to those vices. And now we are freed for the virtue of the Spirit. Not that you work harder when you go home today to create, because you can't do it, but because united to Christ, the Spirit is, is precisely what he is doing in us. And we, it is all because we belong to him. And so now we move on to the next piece, which is if we belong to Christ because his grace has rescued us, then we desire to resemble Christ because his grace reforms us. And again in verse 24, Paul uses this phrase and he says, crucify the flesh. There's this instruction, crucify your flesh. So notice, I'm going to get to this later, so I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'll say it briefly. Notice what Paul actually asks you to do. He doesn't ask you to create the virtues. He doesn't ask you to create the fruit of the Spirit because you can't create that. But when Paul does give the imperative, when Paul does give the instruction, he asks us to crucify our flesh. Why does he do this? He's not calling us to be hard on ourselves. He's actually calling us to set aside the things that keep us from being our true selves. Because you belong to God, you were created by God, you were created for God, which means all of the vices that show up in your life and mine is not the true self. Now, it's going to take a lifetime because we all struggle with our sin. Some sin falls away very quickly. Some sin we struggle with, we, continue, we still struggle with it week in and week out. We all do, everyone in this room, starting with this preacher. And there's some sins that we're going to battle and fight with to the day we die. So there's no theology of perfectionism. We don't become perfect now. If we did, then you wouldn't die. But since you all have this thing called an eminent death, that's a sign that you need to be continually united to Christ because it's not your righteousness. You're standing in a borrowed holiness, right? This is the glory of grace. This is why we celebrate Sunday in and Sunday out and God's grace doesn't get old because it's beautiful. And so... Paul gives us, he describes the sinful nature and he says we've got to go past these sinful actions to the sinful motivation and crucify the flesh. Don't, no, don't be hard on yourself. Oh, I'm a worm. It's, I've I got to reject these things that are actually not my true self because I'm now united with Christ. And so, this is the good news in Paul's instruction. In fact, if you look earlier in verse 17, which we, again, we looked at last week, these, these are things that Paul is asking us to do that you actually want to do. United to Christ and belonging to Christ, forsaking all the things that aren't like Christ, is actually what we want. We can't do that. We battle with it. We struggle with it continually. But he calls us, he calls us to it. See, before we belong to Christ, before we're being reformed and rescued by Christ, the most natural thing to do would be to just give in to the vice. 
But united to Christ by his great grace, the most natural thing for us to do is to fight that now. That's the most natural thing. That's actually not, that's actually not me. And some of you are saying, I don't understand, because when I look in the mirror, I'm pretty sure it is me. Let me just break this out a little bit. In the first four chapters, Paul, Paul writes in what you call the indicative form. It's an indicative form. The indicative form of Scripture, and it's all through the Scripture, indicative means this is so. This is true. The indicative form. So when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is, that's the indicative form. He's saying this is true. This is true about you belonging to Christ, united to Christ by His grace. This is true. The imperative form, then Paul shifts to the imperative form. The imperative form means do this in light of what's true. So he says this is true. This fruit of the Spirit is true of God, and it's true of you because you were created of of God. Now I'm going to give you this instruction. Do this in light of that that's true. The Spirit is doing the producing of the virtue. You can't do that, but what you can do is you can confess and acknowledge and crucify these desires that are contrary to what is actually true of you. So yes, you and I look in the mirror and we say, well, that doesn't, those, those things, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, I'm not sure that describes me. Me either. I weave in and out of that. So do you. But that's actually true, which humbles us to confess that we desire now to resemble Christ because, because his grace is reforming us. It, it's a call to live in alignment with who we are, actually are. And so when you come across the imperatives of Scripture, this is how you understand the New Testament. Every time the Bible is asking you, commanding you to do something, it's not just a prescription. If it was, a, if it was only a prescription, the Bible would not be a book we would want to read. Because if you're reading it with any degree of, of, of clarity, you're going to recognize you don't resemble the command of God's law. Because it's perfect. Right? Hence, Christ had to keep it. So we're always going to be falling short of that. It's not just a prescription. It, it, it's a prescription and a description. So when you read the Bible and it says, do this, right? Crucify your flesh, cast off the, you know, when, do these things. You can read that and say, God's law is commanding me to do this. But God's grace is telling me, I am actually this, united to Christ. Yes, the struggle. Yes, the battles. Yes, we struggle with the sin. But it's encouraging. So every time the Bible gives us an imperative, it's not saying, sola bootstrapsa, try a little bit harder. He's inviting us into who we actually are. He's inviting us to live into this great alignment. And so he's asking us to do this. So whenever the scripture says things like you've been crucified with Christ, that's passive. That's about Christ's grace. That's about what Christ did for you by his grace. When the scripture says crucify your flesh, that's active. We do that by grace, but it's precisely because of his grace, right? We've we've been united to Christ by grace, and his grace is sufficient to rescue us. But we also are uh, being crucifying our flesh by his grace because his grace is also sufficient to renew us. This is what he's doing. I'll describe it this way. In uh, 1501 to 1504, Michelangelo carved a very famous sculpture in Florence called David. Incredibly famous. One of his most famous work. He's done beautiful works, but that, was, that, that took Michelangelo uh, to new levels of notoriety. An incredible work. And there was an urban legend that he was once asked how did you create this incredible sculpture of David? And, his, and Michelangelo's response, according to the legend, is, well, I had a solid 
block of marble and I chipped away everything that didn't look like David. That is a picture of the reforming trajectory of rescuing grace. It is that in you, right now, church, because you are united to Christ, the Spirit of God is slowly, continually, gradually, and inevitably chipping away everything in us that is not the true us. In the resurrection, we are, we are perfected. But between now and then, this beautiful, gradual trajectory of renewal has already begun by God's grace. So we're not invited to create what only the Spirit can create. We are, create, we, we are invited to reject and confess and crucify the things that are not like what the Spirit is creating. That we can do. It's springtime. You're all going to start doing gardening. And you have no power to create uh, the flower. But every one of us can pull weeds. Do you see this is the invitation of Paul? The Spirit is creating and doing what you never can, but we are all invited to pull weeds because we don't want, we don't want them there. This is the true us. This is, what, this is the trajectory of grace. In, in 1521, Luther was writing a treatise on good works, and he said in it, we can't grant the premise of grace and deny its conclusion. You hear me say that all the time. It's because that's his way of summarizing all of Paul's letters to say, we've been rescued from something for something, and it's that freedom. It's true freedom, that true liberation of the gospel in Christ. So we're prayerfully identifying and confessing on a motivational level. We're not simply battling our sin on a behavior level. The gospel is not outside-in behavior management. That's why week in and week out we confess our sin corporately. And our confession is not with guilt. Our confession is with great gratitude because we know that our sin is met by God's grace. And in that, the Spirit does his beautiful renewal. So when we read this passage, this is what we find. That uh, the good news of the gospel is that we belong to Christ. This is what we want. That's verse 17, which was earlier. We talked about that last week. This is what we want. And And the great news, church, for those of you who are sitting here saying, this is a great message, except for the fact that I've got this thing that plagues me and it's constantly a battle and I don't feel like I'm making any headway and it's this habitual chronic uh, sin that I battle with, I have good news for you. That sin, whatever it is, that you think when God looks at it makes him cringe and pull back from you, he runs towards you. He is running toward you. Not only with his forgiving grace that covers you, but his renewing grace that's enabling you to live free from the vice. That slowly and over time, the Spirit is chipping away everything in our heart that is not truly us. This is the promise of of the gospel. This is why the gospel is good news. Which leads us to the final thing. So firstly, we belong to Christ because of his rescuing grace. Secondly, we desire to resemble Christ because of his... Uh, reforming grace. And thirdly, then Paul says in verse 25 there, he says, keep in step. Keep in step with the Spirit of Christ. And we do that because his grace, grace reanimates us. So Paul actually shifts. When he says keep in step with the Spirit, he's shifting away from confessing and turning from things that our sin nature wants to do. And now he's turning toward actively doing things that our new nature in Christ wants to do. It's an active process and it's a positive process, but how do we keep in step? Is this where the sermon shifts and you guys say, I knew it. I knew that Paul has been preaching grace since we 
plantar reamer, but now we're going to make a right-hand turn. Aha! Keep in step with the spirit. Here we go, guys. This is active. We, do, we actually do this. This is an imperative of Scripture. We have to preach it faithfully. But how do we do it? There is a 17th century, 17th century uh, French philosopher named René uh, Descartes. And he famously said, I think, therefore I am. Is that what Paul's up to here? Is, is Paul, are, are, are we about to get invited into keeping in step with the Spirit by just thinking different thoughts? Is that what Christian discipleship is? Is it noetic and intellectual? Do we just replace this thinking with this thinking and then everything works now? Have you tried that before? I have. I'm standing here as a guy who still struggles with sin, who's, who constantly is having conversations with his wife and his kids about things that I wish that I wasn't doing, saying, feeling, creating, still doing that. I can't be the only one in here. So what is Paul inviting us into? Are, is, it, is this a, we think as, uh, you know, I think it, therefore I am? See, Descartes said that because he defined human uh, essence as what he called re cogitin, which means thinking things. He was like, you know, your body and your soul, that's just a vehicle for carting your brain around. I mean, I'm not, those of you who study philosophy know I'm not doing justice to this, but I'm just summarizing it to say, philosophically, he's saying your brain was at the top. And if you could just change that, everything else flows. Is that what Paul's inviting us into? No, he's not. Can we think our way out of vice and into virtue? You can't. We've all tried it. Is If we just sit our kids around the dinner table and we just catechize them, which we should all do, and we want to do, and we are doing, but, I mean, is that really, is it just an information transfer? No, it's not. While it is true that the scripture invites our minds to think in new ways, and it does, we keep in step with the Spirit by attending to what we love. We find our true selves in the context of knowing God as Creator, who made us in grace, knowing He is the redeeming God who recreated us in grace, and we attend to what we love. This whole passage, if you go home and read all of Galatians 5, you're going to see this is all about Paul saying we got to attend to what we love. And if we can attend to what we love and examine what we love and then recognize that what I was loving in this way actually caused me to be very unloving, I can crucify the flesh by confessing and repenting of that vice. But if I don't get underneath the behavior to the motivation and into confession, then all I'm left with is trying to add virtue, virtuous behavior, on top of a vice that's still Gripping my, gripping my heart. I'll borrow from Irenaeus, who was a second century church father, and he was an apologist in the Roman Empire. And speaking about the work of the Spirit, Irenaeus said this. He said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. What does he, what does he mean by that? It's, what, it's where we began this whole thing. A fish thrives in the water. We thrive in the Lordship of Christ. We thrive in God. So the fourth commandment of us gathering and corporately worshiping, right? It's this command, this beautiful command of rest. You see, it's a gracious command of rest. God knows the only way for us to be untangled out of our vice and live in the freedom of his virtue is to come and have our loves attended to. So the fourth commandment of keep the Sabbath holy, of gathering together and worshiping, it's not, this, it's not a tit-for-tat gold stars for attendance situation. If you miss Sundays because you're at, on holidays at the beach with your family, have a great time. If you are not here on a Sunday because something is 
is occurring or you're sick as a dog, don't drag yourself here and make the rest of us sick. Stay home in your bed, put your bunny slippers on, drink some soup, stream live, or don't stream live, and you know, read the Bible and rest in God's great grace. We don't gather because we're earning anything. We gather because in the gathering, the Spirit is doing his regenerative work. As Christ is preached, as we confess our sin, as we are extracted from the Monday to Saturday stuff, and we are reoriented, and our hearts are retuned and recalibrated underneath all of it, that the Spirit begins to do his work. He's chipping it away, those vices, so that that we are free to confess them boldly. The, the commandment to come on the day of rest is from the Lord of rest. He's the Lord of rest. He's wanting to give you his rest. He worked six days on the seventh day. God rested and he's inviting us into that rest. So that on Monday when you go back to work, you're engaging in life, the good and the bad, the beautiful and the stressful, and the paradox of all of it. But underneath all of it, in your spirit, even though the circumstances may not be changing, you are. Your heart is. Because he is doing this glorious work by the power and the virtue of his spirit. Because our hearts are a lot like stomachs. To borrow from James K. Smith, who's a philosopher at Calvin College, we're, our, our appetites drive our lives. We're a lot like existential sharks that just keep moving. And those existential sharks just keep moving because they're just perpetually hungry. And the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ comes and it reanimates why we move and it comes and it reanimates what we want to move toward that's the that is the renewing power of what what god does we are created susan said this at the beginning of the of of our service today that we've got a trinitarian god who was in love before he created everything he didn't need anything so from love he created and so we are created by a god of love So to be a human is to be a lover. We don't get to decide to love. We only get to decide what we love as ultimate. And so in that, God is reordering by the power of his spirit, by the virtue of his spirit, our loves. And so Galatians 5, this text, these verses that we've read this morning, they invite us to consider how grace reanimates our hearts and our lives. If God's grace rescues us, then it produces something in us, and that gives us a fresh impetus for doing everything. And by impetus, I mean the force by which we start moving in the first place. In essence, if our hearts are like stomachs and we're craving certain things, only the gospel can change your taste buds. You can manage, and and by the way, managing our behavior isn't bad or wrong. It's just that it's insufficient. See, if you manage your behavior so you're more loving towards your spouse and your children, that still benefits them. If you're managing your behavior at work because it's beneficial for those that, I mean, that's still beneficial, but you certainly don't need the gospel and you certainly don't need the God of heaven to just manage your behavior. I mean, there's a thousand books down the street at chapters. You can go and get a self Uh, help improvement book written by brilliant psychologists who have a lot of very helpful things to say about how to live a better life tomorrow so i'm not downplaying that like that's somehow not good or important i'm saying that's not enough and that's not even freedom managing our behavior isn't freedom i'm personally sick of managing my behavior because i don't know my behavior is not that great i mean sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not that great What I want is the spirit to renew Paul Dunk so that I want different things. 
You know, my kids are like, amen. You know, like, I need to change. And only God's grace can do that. Change the appetite of the existential shark. Only the gospel can do that. And I close with this. Our enjoyment of God overflows into a life lived to the glory of God. That's Galatians 5. That's Paul going from the first four chapters, what is what the gospel is to what the gospel does. And when you're reading the Bible and you shift from what the gospel is to what the gospel does, you don't abandon grace. It's not, well, thank you, Jesus, for getting me this far. I'll take it from here. It's by his grace that the gospel does what the gospel does in all of our hearts so that we can live to his glory actually from enjoyment and not from exhaustion. Now, Paul isn't inviting us into an outside-in Christianity. So the power to keep in step with the Spirit of Christ comes from the rest and renewal of our worship to Christ. That's the flow of the letter. When Paul says, keep in step, how do you keep in step? Not by trying harder, by trusting deeper. By resting deeply, reflecting, meditation. Thinking of his goodness for you, church. Thinking of how much he loves you. Thinking of how he's forgiven all your sin. But in essence, notice in verse 25, before he says, keep in step with the Spirit, he says, we're living by the Spirit. In other words, the reason Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit, is because our hearts are beating to a new temple. Because of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not a list of principles for you, The fruit of the Spirit is the work of a person in you. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a description of what the Spirit is producing in you, church. That is what the Spirit is doing by his power because you belong to him. We belong to Christ because his grace rescued us. We desire to resemble Christ because his grace is reforming us. And we keep in step with the Spirit because his grace reanimates us. Let's pray.